As G.K. Chesterton said, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Here on Swimming Upstream, we go against the cultural stream by championing life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Your host is Eric Sammons, author of seven books, including Holiness for Everyone, The Old Evangelization, and Bitcoin Basics. Now let's get swimming. Welcome to episode 92 of Swimming Upstream. I'm Eric Sammons. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or wherever you listen to your podcast, and I encourage you to do that so you'll get all the latest episodes. Also, if you like the uh, podcast, please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. I noticed a few people have recently, and I really do appreciate that. Uh, those five-star ratings really do help other people find out about the podcast. Well, this week, there was very exciting news in the Catholic world, exciting for me at least. It was uh, announced that the second miracle for Blessed John Henry Newman had been approved. Now, what does that mean for those who aren't quite sure? First of all, if somebody is called blessed by the church, that means that they have kind of taken the second to last step before becoming a canonized saint. And so John Henry Newman, who I'll talk about more in detail in a minute, he is blessed, which means that he's not yet a canonized saint, but he's on the path. And to become blessed, you have to have a miracle attributed to your intercession after you died. It's kind of like saying that it's God's confirmation that he really is in heaven and he's interceding for us, the the person in, in question. And to become a saint, you have to have a second miracle. To be canonized as a saint, you have to have a second miracle. So you have to have two miracles told. There are exceptions for that. For example, martyrs in other cases, the Pope can make exceptions. But typically that's how it works. Well, the Vatican announced that Pope Francis had approved a second miracle to to Cardinal Newman, uh, which means that he can be canonized a saint. It basically means he will be canonized a saint. And this is going to—we actually don't know when it's going to happen, but I think it's possible it's going to happen as early as uh, this year, possibly in the fall. Uh, you know, we don't know exactly when. But this is very exciting to me because I have a, uh, a great personal devotion to, to Cardinal Newman. And for a few reasons. First of all, he was a uh, convert from Protestantism to Catholicism like I am. He was also English, and I, my whole family uh, from way, way back harkens from uh, England. And so I have an affinity for English saints as well. And he had a teaching that was particularly helpful for me when I was looking at how uh, the church works and, and deciding whether or not to become Catholic and, and really wrestling with different issues. And we're going to talk about that teaching in a little bit. But before I do, I just want to talk about uh, John Henry Newman, Cardinal Newman. He was a cardinal, obviously. Cardinal Newman a little bit. He lived in the 19th century. Actually, his life was almost the entire 19th century. He was born, I think, 1801 and died in 1890. And he was born in England, obviously. I already mentioned that. And he was an Anglican, grew up Anglican. For a little while in his high school years, I think it was, he, w- he went a little agnostic, kind of fell away from the faith. But then he had a conversion experience where he became an evangelical. Uh, I think he stayed within the Church of England at the time, but he was an evangelical, meaning he had a more, um, uh, let's say, an enthusiastic appreciation of the faith and practice of faith than your typical Englishman of the uh, 19th century. 
But that didn't really last. He, he soon became high church Anglican, which high church Anglican basically means that it's somebody who appreciates the, the Catholic aspects of uh, the Church of England. For example, uh, a more formal liturgy perhaps appreciates the, uh, the, the history of the church a little bit more than maybe a low church Anglican would, embraces more traditional doctrines. And he was that for a number of years, and then he eventually converted to Catholicism, and he uh, became a Catholic priest. He was an Anglican priest and became a Catholic priest. He never married. He became a Catholic priest and eventually was made a cardinal of the church uh, near the end of his life. Now, a few things about Cardinal Newman is, uh, number one, he loved the, the early church. He wrote a lot about the early church, especially the, the time of the 4th century during the great Christological debates of the 4th century when uh, Arius was proclaiming that Jesus wasn't really God and, and, and the church was combating him and Arianism was taking over the church. He really studied that, Cardinal Newman studied that time frame a lot. And he loved to, to, to think about the early church and really in a sense of how are we doing things today and are we faithful to the way the early church practiced the faith. And in the 1830s, uh, Newman was a leading figure in the what's called what's called the Oxford Movement, and basically it was a group of uh, people in the Anglican Church. They lived in mostly in Oxford, obviously, and they felt like the direction of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, was going too Protestant, uh, becoming too liberal, in fact. And they believed that the uh, Anglican Church really they wanted it to be a middle way between Catholicism and Protestantism. So it didn't have the excesses of Catholicism as they saw it, but didn't have the liberalizing tendencies of the uh, Protestantism either. They really saw the, the Anglican Church as one branch of the overall small C Catholic Church, meaning there was a universal church that was uh, over the entire world, but really the Roman Catholic Church was one branch, the Orthodox Church was one branch, and they saw the Anglican Church, the Church of England, as one branch. So these mostly men of the Oxford movement, they wrote tracts to try to convince their fellow Anglicans of what they were teaching, uh, what they believed. Now, this caused a lot of controversy at the time, and because most Anglicans, I believe, at the time really thought they were crypto-Catholics, that they really were, were uh, Catholics in Anglican disguise, and they, so they didn't really trust them. And so Newman was involved in a lot of controversy during this time, and he also was an Anglican priest at this time. He had become an Anglican priest at this time. And so Newman continued to study the, the history of the church, especially the early church, and to see what was it that the church has always taught, how has it practiced its faith. And doing that, he saw that, that the church has developed over time its teachings. And he came up with, basically, uh, he didn't come up with it, others had thought of it, but really he was the one who made it um, well-known and articulated it and explained it the best. And it's the idea of a development of doctrine, that over time, doctrine develops. And in his studies of doing this, he decided, he decided to convert to Catholicism because what he realized was when he looked at the early church debates, how the early church determined what is truth, what is doctrine, what is dogma, especially in those uh, debates of the fourth century that I mentioned before, between orthodoxy, between the, the, the Orthodox Church, a small Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, and the Arians, the heretics, what he realized was if he took his, the churches of, the, of his day and put them back in that time, 
he realized the Anglicans would have been in the role of the Arians, of the heretics, and the Roman Catholics would have been in the role of the Catholics. And the way the Anglicans debated issues and, and, and taught doctrine was similar to how the Arians did. And when he realized that, he realized, I need to become Catholic. I need to enter the Catholic Church, the, the, the true Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, not Angl the, the Church of England, which considered itself kind of Catholic. And so he converted in 1845. He was 44 years old at the time. He was received into the church in 1845. And he lived the rest of his life, the next 45 years of his life, uh, as a Catholic, as a leading Catholic in England, in fact. There was a lot of things that Cardinal Newman taught and, and it's really, this is one reason I love about him. He's got so many of his teachings. He taught about the role of the university, what it should be. He taught about the role of conscience in somebody's life, how conscience should guide us as, as Christians, as followers of Christ, and how really conscience guides everybody, and other teachings as well. But the one he's most known for and the one I'm most appreciative of is this teaching on the development of doctrine. It's his most famous teaching. It's also probably his most controversial teaching. Now, development of doctrine is a very important uh, doctrine because when we look at church history, we see that the teachings of how they're presented, the, the teachings of the church, how they're presented in the church, are not identical to how they were presented in earlier times. So how we teach about uh, the Trinity, for example, isn't the same as how it was taught maybe in, the, in 100 A.D., how we, are, how we teach about uh, Marian doctrines has, has changed over time. And so there's a couple different ways you could look at this reality. This is just a historical fact that you can't really debate that things have changed over time in how we present, how, how the church has presented its teachings. And there's four different ways that you can really look at this. I wrote an article for Catholic Answers, I think it was uh, back in October, November, something like that in which I, I, I talk about these four views of how, the, how the, the, the presentation of the church changing over time, what does this mean, how we should look at that. One view is the idea that any change after the first century is basically a deformation, that it is going against the original teaching. You see this a lot in Protestantism, especially fundamentalist Protestantism, that they'll say anything that kind of came later after the time of the apostles really isn't, to be trusted. And so how the church taught things maybe in the 4th century, in the 10th century, especially in the Middle Ages, that's not to be trusted. That's a corruption more than anything else. And the ones who take this to the most logical conclusion, the most extreme logical conclusion, is the Mormons, because they believe there was a great apostasy that occurred. They don't really say when, but sometime after the time of the apostles, where basically the church fell away from the faith. And it took Joseph Smith in the 19th century, about the same time as Newman, in fact, was leading the Oxford movement, it took Joseph Smith in America to restore it to its pristine uh, first century uh, belief. So that's one way you could look at it. So all those changes are basically corruptions. Another is the idea that the church can change its teachings. It can actually change what is taught today versus what was taught yesterday or, or you know, 100 years ago. And that's kind of the liberal view today. A, a liberal Catholic would say that, that even though the church, maybe the church taught that, uh, let's say, abortion was wrong 100 years ago, it doesn't mean necessarily it's going to teach it so wrong 10 years from now. So that's another view, which is logically ridiculous. But anyway, the third view is 
it's to deny that the church has changed things, that, that no, the church has always presented things the same, and it's basically always been the same. And that's really uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. A lot of Eastern Orthodox accept that view. The, the, what's ironic is one of the, the great uh, texts on the development of doctrine in the church is uh, by uh, Pelican. He, he has a five-volume, or is it four-volume? I've read them all. I can't remember if there's four or five. Here, let me look over at my bookshelf. I can count them right now. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, five. He had a five-volume uh, set on uh, giving the historical account of the development of doctrine. What's interesting about it is that Pelican became Orthodox, yet a lot of Orthodox would deny that. They would say, basically, we should teach things exactly like they taught things, maybe not in the first century, but at least in the time of the Church Fathers. So that's another way you can look at it. So those are three ways you can look at it. The fourth way is what I would call the Catholic way, which is that church doctrines don't change over time. They develop. And so what does that mean to say that a church teaching doesn't change, but it develops? This was the question that Newman wanted to look at. This is the question that Newman really studied. And what the best way to explain it is this. Development would be something like uh, an acorn becoming a tree. That's its logical conclusion. It's going to become a it, logical end. It's going to become a tree. Or a better analogy would actually be a baby that eventually becomes an adult. It's still the same person. It hasn't changed into a different person. It has just grown and developed. So it doesn't necessarily look the same. Although you'd see similarities between an adult and a, and and the, and the person as a baby. But it, but and a lot of things have quote-unquote, change, but really they're all developments. They're natural developments. A lot of people have compared the development of doctrine to evolution, the teaching of evolution, which was at the same, was being developed at the same time. I mean, uh, uh, Darwin and Newman were contemporaries. Uh, Darwin's theory of evolution came a little bit after uh, Newman taught about development of doctrine, but basically same time frame. But that's really a bad, that's a bad comparison because evolution, the teaching, at least as Darwin presents it, is, can be a change from one species to another. And so the fact is we go from monkeys to men, for example, that wouldn't be a development. That's an evolution. That's a change, really. And so, or becoming fish, uh, going from fish to being uh, monkeys to being humans, whatever the case might be, you're actually changing in that case. It's not just developing. And so for Newman, he was very insistent that development of doctrine meant a, a, not a change, but a, a true development from a, a more basic form, a more primitive form, to a more uh, complex or, or more developed form. Now, Newman had a number of tests to determine if a doctrine being taught today was a true development or if it was a corruption or a change from previous teachings. The first one is what he would call preservation of type, and that's basically what I was saying uh, already, that as an adult keeps the same members and organs as a newborn child, so the church and its teaching must always remain recognizably the same. So we don't change things. So if something is true today and you say tomorrow the opposite is true, that's obviously not a development. It's, it's literally changed. It's literally gone to the opposite. And so that, that w that's important. Another very important point is that a development would be a logical sequence. By the way, I'm taking some of this from an excellent book by uh, Cardinal Avery Dulles, who wrote a, a biography on, really a, on John Henry Newman and talked about his teachings. And so some of this I'm taking from there. Um, 
just for those who, I, who's it published by? Continuum Press, I think I believe it is what it says. So anyway, another test for uh, whether or not a teaching is a development, a legitimate development or a change, is a logical sequence. Meaning certain truths, when believed and put into practice, they imply other truths. So for example, the remission of sin in baptism that we know we have remission of sins, well, it logically means that after baptism, there needs to be some way to have a remission of sins. How, how do we have forgiveness of sins after baptism? Otherwise, we'd all be just hoping for the best, that we'd be baptized right at the moment of our death, which actually some in the early church did do that. But there's a logical sequence there that if we believe that sins are completely forgiven at baptism and, and, and gone, there needs to be some way to forgive those sins after baptism. And of course, that's a sacrament of confession. If you look at the history of the sacrament of confession, it wasn't completely clear how it would be practiced and how what it was in the early church, and it became clear over time because there needed to be some way. There's a development we have because it's a logical sequence. Some of them, another test is its anticipation of its own future. So some doctrines didn't have a formal recognition until relatively late, but were foreshadowed by beliefs and practice of Christians in earlier time. The example Dulles gives uh, for, from Newman is that the veneration of the relics of the martyrs were a prelude to the invocation of the saints. So we, we have the intercession of saints that developed over time, but we've always had the, the, the um, veneration of the relics of the martyrs. So there's a continuity there. Also, another thing is that it has a, another test is a conservative action on its past. What does that mean? Does the new doctrine that is being proposed, does it confirm or weaken adherence to the, to the ancient faith? So, for example, if the, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, the doctrine of Trinity that developed, that, that came really into fruition in the fourth century, does it undermine or support prior and fundamental doctrine of, mon of monotheism. So for ex what I'm saying there is the Trinity has always been the best example of development of doctrine. If you look at the history of uh, what the church has believed about the Trinity, you see it's a clear development. In the first century, the, the Christians believed very firmly there was only one God. They accepted that teaching from Judaism. Yet they ascribed to three different entities divine qualities. And I mean, of course, God, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. If you look in Scripture, it's very clear that they're, they're seen as equal to each other. I mean, just the baptismal formula of Jesus saying, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That would be blasphemous if, if one of those entities was, was divine, but the others were not. And uh, St. Paul talks a lot. He, he combines the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in various uh, ways as well. And again, that would be blasphemous if you believe there was only one God and and only one of those entities was God. Now, if you're polytheist, then that wouldn't necessarily be a problem, but they were clearly not polytheists. And so the church had this doctrine of the Trinity from the beginning, from the time of Jesus himself. He obviously is the one who revealed it, but their understanding of the Trinity wasn't as developed as it later became. And you see this in the writing of the church fathers, the apostolic fathers, the post-apostolic fathers in the second century. Uh, you see it in the third century where how they're explaining how it can be true that there is only one God, yet three separate entities, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are all God. 
I mean, obviously that's something that boggles the imagination. It's difficult to explain, and you wouldn't think of it on your own. It's not reason alone can come up with that. You need revelation. It was revealed to us. But how, how does that work? And so the church grappled with that. You see that in church fathers. You see various developments. So, for example, Tertullian, in the, uh, around the year 200 or so, he had the you know, he is the first one who used the Latin term Trinitas for Trinity, but he didn't really have an understanding of Trinity like we would later have. Then in the fourth century is when it really came to a head because people were challenging whether or not Jesus was God. And that, of course, leads to the idea of, well, if he's God and the Father's still God, how does that work? And now how about the Holy Spirit? We ascribe to him certain divine qualities. He's got to be, he's God as well. How do we explain all this? And this is where the church, in a stroke of uh, genius and, and I would say divine intervention, came up with the idea of using Greek uh, philosophical categories to explain the Trinity. And so we came up with the, the church came up with the idea that there is only one uh, divine nature, but there are three divine persons. So there's three persons with one, that share one nature. It really is only, they don't share them in a way I, that you might even think about it. They, they basically are one God. So we see this clear development. There hasn't been much development of the Trinity since then, but that's a clear development. And the, what's interesting is that's a development that all traditional Christians, whether they be Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant, they all accept that. I mean, your traditional uh, Protestant accepts the Trinity. And so, therefore, if you accept the teaching of the Trinity, you have to accept as it's explained in the 4th century, you have to accept the idea of development of doctrine. It's just that they go together. But, of course, many Protestants, most Protestants, accept other developments that the Catholic Church accepts, such as the development of the Marian doctrines. For example, it wasn't until the uh, 19th century, during the time of Newman, in fact, that the Church declared officially the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that Mary was conceived without the stain of original sin by a singular uh, grace of God. Now, Catholics have believed for centuries, uh, since the beginning, in fact, that Mary was sinless. But what does that mean that she was sinless? The idea of the Immaculate Conception that she was conceived without original sin, that was developed over time. And so most Protestants reject that. They reject the idea of her even being sinless. Uh, Orthodox don't really accept the Catholic teaching on Immaculate Conception, but they do believe she was sinless. So we see, again, this development. And this is the, what, what Newman was trying to explain, is that we have the case where church teaching does appear to, quote-unquote, change over time, meaning, for example, how we explain the Trinity today is different than how we explained it in the first century, but it doesn't really change. It's a development because we still believe the same thing, the core teachings we've always believed. And this is where uh, Newman really, his genius was used by, I think, by God to make this clear. And for me personally, this was a, a great uh, thing for me because I, I was challenged with this myself, how to explain the changes in church doctrine, what appeared to be changes in church doctrine over the years. Uh, both, you, you could have a problem with it from an atheist point of view that, look, you're just making it up as you go along. There is no real God because there was a God, you'd have the exact same teachings all the time. And from a Protestant view of, well, clearly, what the Catholic Church looks like in its teachings isn't the same as what it looked like before. As a Protestant, we had this myth that what we, what we believed and how we practice the faith today is identical to how the apostles did. And Catholics don't even try to act like that's true. And so for me as a Protestant, I, I took pride in the fact that we didn't have these corruptions that the, uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church had. But when I'm looking at Catholicism, I'm seeing that, well, wait a minute. 
actually, first of all, Protestants don't practice the faith like they did in the first century. I mean, if you look at the first century, the Eucharist is, is in baptism are obviously sacraments that are first and foremost in the life of the Christians. And if you look at a typical Protestant church today, some don't even practice baptism or it's baptism later in life. And it's only a public declaration. And none of them believe in a uh, communion in the sense of Eucharist that's really Jesus Christ, the real presence, like they did in the early centuries. And they don't even practice communion often. I mean, in my church growing up, we practiced, I think, two or three, maybe four times a year. Whereas in the early church, I mean, the weekly gathering was the, called the breaking of the bread because they always uh, celebrated the Eucharist during their, their, their weekly uh, Sunday gatherings. So this idea of development of doctrine really... Uh, cleared things up for me that yes it's true that on the outside things do look different at times in the catholic church how it's, the faith is believed in practice today than it was in the first century or second century or something like that but if you look at the core what happened you see that it's actually true it, it's, it's consistent i should say between now and the first second century and in fact it makes more sense that it would develop over time than it would if it would stay the same. First of all, remember, the church has always been called the body of Christ. A body does, is not stagnant. If a body is stagnant, it dies. And so the body of Christ here on earth also ha cannot be stagnant or it will die. It continues to grow. And the development makes sense because of the, the, the relationship between divine revelation and human reason. There are many parts of our faith we only know from divine reason. We don't know through human reason. We only know from divine revelation. And so, but divine revelation is so far beyond human reason. It's not against human reason, but it's beyond. Our human reason can only grasp it so much. And so it takes time to really understand it. And so over time, we are going to understand it better. So how we explain it is going to get better. That's basically what's happening is like the Trinity a modern Christian can explain the Trinity better than a first-century Christian can. That's just a fact. I'm not saying we can uh, practice our belief better or be better Catholics necessarily, but I am saying that we can explain the mystery of the Trinity better than they could back then. We can explain the mystery of the role of the, the Blessed Virgin Mary in salvation history than, better, possibly, than somebody maybe the second century could. And that makes sense. That's the way it should be if you look at how human reason works and the reality of divine revelation. And so Newman really did a great service to the church uh, because for a long time, if you look at the history, at writings of, of Catholics um, before Newman, a lot of times they did try to act like things were always the same in the church, how things were presented. And Newman really made it clear that, no, we don't have to say that because that's not true. We don't have to deny the reality of history. We can instead understand that this is how it should be. This is how uh, teaching should be developing over time. Now, today, unfortunately, we have a, an abuse of this teaching on the development of, of doctrine. Excuse me, I had to take a drink right there. My throat was starting to get a little bit scratchy. What is that abuse that we see in, uh, about that teaching and development of doctrine? Really, since about Vatican II, many Catholics want to change church teaching, but they claim it's a development. We see this very commonly today at the highest levels of the church. And yes, you know who I'm talking about when I say the highest levels of the church. But you see it throughout many uh, Catholics, uh, lay people, priests, bishops, uh, higher than bishops. And so basically what we, we, we see is that that 
many Catholics want to change church teaching, teaching they don't like. So, for example, on contraception, on divorce and remarried Catholics receiving communion, on the teaching of homosexuality, abortion. We see it's usually these pelvic issues that we're talking about. That Catholics want, liberal Catholics want to change what they're teaching is. And they say, well, it's a development. I mean, look, Cardinal Newman said things can change over time. But they don't really understand Cardinal Newman's teaching on the development of doctrine or the church's acceptance of that. It, these things don't pass the test of Newman's developments. They are not uh, developments. They are changes. I mean, for example, does the, do these new doctrines confirm or weaken adherence to the ancient faith? Obviously, they weaken they, because they, they reject the teachings of the ancient faith. Are they a logical sequence? Is it a logical sequence to say, yes, uh, homosexuality is moral now, although forever we've taught that it's immoral? There's no logical sequence there. Is it preservation of type? Does it, is it a new? Is it a something that developed out of something beforehand? No, absolutely not. It's it's going the opposite direction. So basically, on all the tests of Newman for is a new teaching, a development or not? What we see is that it is not these 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 changes that liberal Catholics want are not developments, legitimate developments. They are uh, corruptions of or rejections of previous teaching. And so we as Catholics need to reject them wholeheartedly and reject the idea that it's a development. I found that many Catholics, Orthodox Catholics, they're very nervous about the idea of development of doctrine because they see how it's being abused so much. They're like, well, I don't really know if I want to accept that. It'd be better just to say we've always said the exact same thing the exact same way, and then we know we can't say now contraception is okay or something like that. But I don't think that's the way to go because I think we have to be true to our heritage, true to our tradition, and that tradition has included development of doctrine. And so what I think we need to do is uh, really understand Newman's development of doctrine teaching and the church's acceptance of it so that we can combat these uh, false views of how uh, doctrine supposedly develops when really it's, it's asking for a corruption of previous teaching. Now, I, I, th I think I'm going to wrap it up there. I just wanted to, again, say how wonderful it is that Carl Newman is going to be canonized. Uh, as I mentioned, he's one of my favorite saints. I think he's, he's in my top five, might be my top two. Francis of Assisi is always number one. But Carl Newman is right up there. I really just uh, have a, a great devotion to him. And the fact that he's been canonized is great because it will increase our, the church's devotion to him and our and intercession to him. And we really need his intercession today so we can combat the abuse of his teaching on the development of doctrine, so we can go against these changes that people want to have, that, that Newman rejected. Newman even said when he became a cardinal that his whole life's work was to combat liberalism. And so I think you know it's, it's clear that he would not accept these new teachings as somehow uh, true developments of doctrine. He would reject them. So we need, his, we need to ask for his intercession to help us combat them today. Okay, that's it for today's show. I really want to thank you for listening. And until next time, keep swimming against the stream.